Welcome to another episode of Rockstar Violinist, though this week it's a cellist. I'm your host, Matt Bell. Our featured artist this week is the amazing Amanda Gookin. She's a New York-based cellist who is involved in a number of cutting-edge projects. You're listening right now to her playing Stray Sods for cello and electronics. This episode is brought to you by Electric Violin Shop, the world leader in electric strings. Even if, like Amanda, you play an acoustic instrument, but need help with pickups, mics, loopers, effects, and amps, give EVS a shout. We have tons of experience with all of that. Find us online at electricviolinshop.com. Amanda was kind enough to visit with me in my apartment in New York in between two rehearsals. I could tell you more, but it's really better to hear it from her. After a quick listen to Stray Sods, here will be my chat with Amanda Gookin, rock star cellist. So, reading your biography on your website, you've had a, a really interesting trip to get from being a little kid learning how to play the cello to being here, where you are now. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's so funny because now, you know, I'm, I'm 35 and I think about um, since college, all of the things that I've done, and sometimes, you know you start to reflect on your career and you're like, maybe I should have done this or I should have done that or I should take in this direction. And um, it wasn't until I hit probably my mid-30s where I started to appreciate all of the little, um, you know, diverging paths that I took and, um, you know, everything from working as a vet tech for a while to working for nonprofits and, um, you know, doing some volunteer work. And it all in the end, fed into the musician that I am now. So I'm really grateful for a variety of experiences. But it was definitely a very interesting path. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've actually gone fairly large stretches in your life not playing the cello much. Well, I always was playing. It's just that um, I think for a couple years I was wondering if I was on the right track. And... Um, So, you know, when I graduated from the Manus School of Music um, and I moved to Spain, I still was playing the cello out there and taking lessons, Um, but I was also just exploring life, you know, I was teaching English to little kids and um, traveling and um, finding myself, I guess. And when I came back to the States, um, I had already lost a couple years and some of my friends from college were already... Um, in the freelance scene and 
I was even wondering um, what type of musical path I would want to take if I wanted to take it. So um, I'd always had a love for animal science and natural sciences and thought that perhaps <laughs> I'd be able to pull off being a veterinarian and a musician at the same time. <laughs> and it was, it was a, a fun, very informational journey. It was really interesting throwing in, you know, scrubs and sneakers for a couple years. And the first day on the job, I was, um, uh, you know, I, I witnessed a, um, a female spay of a cat. And, and I was super into it. I wasn't scared away at all. But after a while, once I was becoming more established back in the city, um, it became very hard to balance and I had to make a choice. So I think I made the right choice. <laughs> I feel like a lot of young artists really want to say something, but they don't have enough life experience to really know what they want to say. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it's cool that, that you have this journey of sort of self-discovery. And it feels like you were really introspective the whole time, too, like trying to, gosh, who am I? What am I about? What am I passionate about? So when it finally comes time to, hey, I'm ready to say something, that you have something to say. Yeah, totally. I think some projects that I've established now are really a convergence of all of that. And if I hadn't um, had those years where I was exploring, um, I don't think I would be as creatively fulfilled. I mean, it's not a race. I mean, we have this youth-obsessed culture, right? That mm -hmm. the, the 27 Club and all, the, all these things that, gosh, if you haven't completely revolutionized the music industry by the time you're 25, what are you doing with your life? And, um, yeah. I think maybe we do maybe we do ourselves a disservice by that mm -hmm. and and sort of again I think back to being 25 and, and I was just full of a lot of stuff and, <laughs> and, and full of myself in a lot of ways and, and didn't really have the life experience to to speak the way maybe I do now that I'm older yeah well the you know the the vibe that I really felt all along from starting cello, I started cello at nine and um, really realized in high school that, that I wanted to study uh, music and um, I had to give up a lot of other activities to solely focus on that and through college and in my early 20s and it in classical music it really is um, a line of work that um, rewards the young young talent, which um, is, of course, very impressive, and um, I'm always in awe of, of somebody that accomplishes uh, a, a lot at a young age, so it's not to say that it shouldn't be rewarded at all, um, but it's, you really, as you get older, I really start to see differences in young, um, fast, you know, fast-moving or... Um, or young, young professionals that were successful very early on and others that sort of um, churned a little bit to try to f find their path. Um, and so I think finding the longevity in our careers is really hard because when you're young and in your 20s perhaps, um, everything is fun and everything is new and everything is an adventure. But it's your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, hoping that we live long, full lives, that you really have to figure out how you're going to fill that and how you're going to remain authentic through every decade. And um, I think
think without really having the opportunity to fail a little bit or having the opportunity to flounder or being forced to think outside the box um, may, may hinder us along the way. So you really, in your career right now, you've sort of got this several-headed monster of things that you're Mm -hmm. doing, right? So let's talk about some of the uh, some of the different projects that you have and and what each of those say and what they what they mean to you. Yeah, well, um, I have a string quartet called Public Quartet, and we've been together for eight and a half years now. Which is, I I sort of just made that realization that like. A year and a half will have been together for a decade of my life, which is, it just goes by so fast. It's pretty insane. Um, so I've been really dedicated to that ensemble for a long time. Um, and we have had an interesting journey ourselves as well. Uh, we started out as a pretty traditional string quartet and then really found our voice in the first two years um, where we uh, arrange a lot of music, we write some of our own music, and um, we improvise and we focus a lot on performing contemporary works and supporting emerging composers. Um, and I have a solo project that is uh, a huge passion and focus for me uh, right now called the Ford Music Project. And I developed that in 2015 to um, raise awareness of um, women's issues and other social issues, as well as to create um, more works by women for solo cello and to provide a, a platform for female artists. So. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk more about that solo project. I mean, I feel like with all the stuff going on in the United States, like culturally right now, mm-hmm. the, the artists have always responded to things like that pretty pretty strongly, right? So I think... It was maybe fortunate, or maybe you had some foresight in 2015 to see that there was a storm brewing. Yeah, it's interesting that you you, you bring that up because I think um, I didn't. I I don't know. Maybe I had. I just had been thinking at that moment. Um, well, I'll backtrack to actually why I started the project, and um, I was I, I went back to grad school relatively late in my career. Um, and I, um, had long drives every day up to school from the city and I listened to NPR along the way a lot. And, um, there is a, a, a woman named, uh, Shama Sawant. I always watch the pronunciation a little <laughs> bit, but she's a member of the Socialist Party out in Seattle and was responsible or, um, one of the responsible party members to um, raise the minimum wage in Seattle to like $15 an hour. And this was a few years ago, so I'm, I um, things might have even increased since then. Um, but uh, regardless of some of the details I might be botching, the, the main thing was just the feeling that I had and the awe that I felt for hearing uh, a woman on the political platform speaking so passionately and so powerfully about... Um, uh, an issue that really affects a lot of Americans and the fact that she was able to accomplish this um, was just amazing and um, of all the things that I had done non-musically in my life 
you know, working as a veterinary technician or working for a musician's union. I also volunteered and subsequently worked um, as an administrator in a crisis hotline. So all the non-musical portions of my life somehow had to do with helping, whether it was, you know, helping owners and their pets or helping um, musicians, you know, with their union contracts and gaining fair pay or um, helping victims, you know, who were in, in points of crisis. I realized that none of that had entered into the musical, my musical life. Um, and I was, I was really satisfied creatively, but I was not satisfied in terms of um, the separation that I had. And so I figured that, um, you know, I always was, or not always actually, but I was becoming increasingly aware of the disparity in programming of music by men versus music by women. And I figured that the, the next thing I really wanted to do was to combine all of that through the platform that I focus on the most, which was music. And so it took me a while. I was really scared to do this. I was not a solo artist. Um, in fact, I would always tell people, like, oh, I play in a string quartet. Like, I'm not a soloist. It's not my thing. Um, but I just, I don't know what it was. I, I just felt like a, a driving need to do this. And usually, if I'm uncomfortable in a situation or I, there's something I want to do but I'm afraid to do it, I dig myself in a hole that's too deep that I can't dig my way out of. So I'm just forced to, you know, um, uphold my um, agreement, sure. <laughs> you know, with these composers that I've asked to write music for me. Um, so it was a really fun, fun journey. And right as I set up the premiere, um, probably the in the summer of 2016, and this was right when things were starting to change in our country and it was actually starting to look like Trump was going to first run and then you know winning the primaries and stuff like that so when I premiered the project it just happened to be at this very it was in March of 2017 so it was right after um uh President Trump was uh you know voted into office and um <laughs> which I don't know how political your podcast gets. It's like even just this, trying to, so even this is this is your interview. You talk <laughs> okay. about what you want, and regardless of anybody's political opinion. It, you can't really dispute that there's definitely this rolling mm -hmm. thing going yeah. on right now. Well, for me, I think it was a devastating blow, <laughs> you know, and um, and the premiere just happened to fall right after this. So I felt even more charged and even more glad that I followed through. And um, it's very clear that, um, whereas you know many people are now getting involved in social action, which is great, that um, no matter how great it seems on the outside, that people are getting involved. So it, it gives the illusion that things are changing at a very quick pace. But um, I don't believe that they're moving as fast as we would like them to be. So I think um, I just feel even more responsibility you know, to, to, to keep going. So tell me how, how do you, how do the, the nuts and bolts of that work where you've, you really want to advocate for the underprivileged and for those that are sort of overlooked by maybe the, the ruling class. 
How, how does that translate into notes playing on a cello? Yeah, I thought about that for a really long time, and um, I've received all sorts of feedback on the power of music um, and on the project. Um, some of it uh, was super positive. I, a lot of it is very positive, and some of it I received some you know, questionable feedback. Um, and it's very... It, the way I <clears throat> set up the project is that sometimes um, conversation, I th I, not just sometimes, I believe conversation in concert is really important. So whether you're playing a work by Beethoven, there's always something that you can pull in to draw on issues of today. Um, and so it's been very interesting, the opportunities that I've had to perform these pieces, because um, you know, sometimes I'll have a platform of 200 audience members where I'm performing a piece about sexual assault and you don't have to say much, but the piece really speaks for itself and, and all it does is provide nine minutes of a performance for people to reflect on that issue however they feel, you know, um, and to, to bring issues of society today into the concert hall. Um, and I think the combination of it with, you know, music performance can also be really healing. So um, if I am playing a piece that is about, um, you know, assault, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very visceral piece. So I'm experiencing it like, um, this piece that I'm referencing in particular is by composer named Morgan Krauss, who lives in Chicago. And, um, she chose the, this opportunity to come out about her experiences of sexual assault. And I'm very humbled and grateful that she trusted me with her story. Um, and uh, so my responsibility is to put 200% into that um, and to try to empathize as much as I can musically. And the piece is really tiring. If I do it well, I have like very little finger feeling in my hands after, you know, and people in the audience also can really feel that experience. Um, and so she wanted it to be a platform for victims to not be afraid to speak out um, and to know that there are people out there that um, have the same experience and, and that um, if they're in the audience, we can share it for nine minutes, and if they're not, they can just reflect on it however they want. Um, and then there are other pieces that are on the opposite end of the spectrum of like empowerment where it's just, you get to just rock out and have fun and, and celebrate also the strength of women. Um, and it's interesting because I asked, you know, I asked seven women to write for me and i um, so grateful they all said yes. And I said, I gave them very little guidelines. It's like, yeah, just write me a piece that is about, you know, about women and girls. It can be your own story, an issue you want to highlight. And like five of the pieces that came back to me were very heartbreaking, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's it's just a testament that there's it's not just localized in this little New York City bubble. Um, there are a lot of issues around the world that they chose to to write about, and so I think it's just um, a healing process for everybody. And then on the other side of it, outside the concert hall, I also um, do workshops with girls and we create, um, you do word association and they write their own poetry and we create sound installations 
um, in you know based around discussions that we've had of what it's like to be. Um, I mostly work with teenagers. What it's like to be a you know a young girl in this country, or that came to this country you know at some at some point um, in their life. So. Yeah, it's been an interesting road. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So when you're playing these as, as part of your solo show, is I guess there's not lyrics to these. You're not singing no. as well. So you're are you explaining to people, hey, this is what this piece is about, or you just let it sort of musically speak for itself? Well, it depends on the context. Um, I for my premiere, I uh, asked all the composers to record program notes. Mm. So I didn't say a word during the show before every piece. There their voice would be heard telling what, you know, saying their story or what the piece is about, and then I would perform it. Um, sometimes, if I don't have those capabilities, I talk about the piece myself. Um, but there's not that much... Um, I guess it just depends on the context, you know, where I am and how, and how much I say and what I say. Sure. Um, and also, what a comp- I have an artistic partner, Katie Tucker, who um, is a video artist, and she created projection art for the the run of the show, um, which is also really beautiful. So it provides, there's not only a sonic representation of these issues, but also a visual art to go with it. Cool. Yeah. So sort of pivoting now to talking about the string quartet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sort of give us a rundown on that. Where are you guys playing? What kind of work are you guys doing? The... the the things that you're writing and, and all that. Yeah. We, um, so we started in 2010 and we're all based here in New York City and um, we have performed all over the U.S., which is really exciting. We're with a, a um, management called Concert Artists Guilds right now um, and really enjoying that. And um, we have developed a very specific voice. I think there there are other quartets that are buddies of ours that are like-minded um, and trying to bust through the boundary of the traditional string quartet, which is great. Um, and so it's been a fun road trying to develop what the specific voice of public quartet is. And we have two, two main programs that represent that. One is... Um, uh, something we call a project that we call Mind the Gap, and we take um, music from dif- disparate genres and mash them together through group improvisation and composition. So we have a piece um, that combines Charlie Parker and Claude Debussy, um, Stravinsky and Thelonious Monk. Um, most recently, we um, have two Mind the Gaps that uh, one is. Um, a reworking of Dvorak's American Quartet, which we um, sort of... What Dvorak did was he took the sounds of America that he heard at that time. Um, so, you know, Native American tunes, Negro spirituals, um, the, that quintessential American sound, and rolled it into his music. Um, and so what we've done is we have taken that inspiration that he had and updated it to you know, the 21st century. So we incorporate sounds of rock and roll and jazz and um, contemporary sounds. Um, and also we have one called Sancta Femina, which takes music uh, written by women in the um, medieval and Baroque eras and modernize them as well. Um, and the other program is called Public Access, and that is a, a commission project that... Um, 
creates new works by emerging composers living within the U.S. Um, so it's been really awesome. Um, I do, I write a lot of grants for the quartet, and um, you have to sort of put together a lot of statistics <laughs> to sort of prove that all your projects are worthy. And um, so we've uh, highlighted 15 new works from that program, and um, public access pieces have been performed for um, 100 plus concerts across the country. Um, so it's been really fun to look back and see that we're, you know, really trying to get audiences to support young voices, but also just to support the creation of new music. Amanda just talked about her group, Public Quartet. Here is one of the Mind the Gap pieces she talked about. This one is called, What is American? So from a standpoint of <clears throat> branching out from where the traditional voice of the cello has been, a traditional implementation of the cello, where do you see yourself sort of trying to peel away from tradition and how are, how are you doing that? Mm. Well, it's been really fun because with my project, I didn't know what I was going to get. So some of the pieces uh, really um, broke into a new part of me and I didn't know that was there. Um, and so I think as a, as a solo cellist, I've been getting more and more into extended techniques and, um, sort of performance art. Um, and like the piece I was talking about earlier, there's a lot of, um, sort of suffocating sounds that I have to create and, and muffled screams and physical gestures, um, and uh, I have really enjoyed the process of embodying that spirit, um, and so uh, for I'm commissioning new works for this next season, and I told the composers to feel free to push my boundaries, and one of them was talking about, um, so the, the next round of, of compositions are going to be still based on um, 
you know, issues of women and girls, but it's more the, the physical, visceral experience. And so it's called um, In This Skin. So it's like, what does it actually physically feel like to be um, in a woman's skin? And one composer was already talking about possibly writing a piece about kink, so pleasure and pain and possibly putting contact mics all over my body. So it's, um, I think this one is, especially because it, it is really a representation of actual pain and pleasure and discomfort um, or comfort. So um, it's going to be very fun to see where I get pushed. Um, in any opportunity that, that I have to perform the cello, but also to do other crazy stuff is awesome. And I, so I've become a lot more experimental and pretty much open to anything. So you said you're doing looping mm -hmm. too. Um, what are you using for mics and pickups and, and gear? Yeah, um, so I have a DPA mic and um, the loop pedal was gifted to me by the composer who, who wrote the piece. So Jessica Meyer wrote Swerve for me, and that was the very first time that I had ever used a loop pedal in my life. Um, so it was a little bit of a learning curve, because mm -hmm. I wasn't just experimenting with it. There were strict instructions of when I was okay. supposed to turn it off or when I was supposed to record, record certain sections. Um, so there was a lot of... Um, uh, now it's sort of second nature, but in the beginning there was a lot of coordination happening, you right. know, with like one foot on the pedal to turn the page of my iPad, the other foot on the, on like, you know, looping and then trying to remember which pedal, you know, stop recording. I've made a lot of very interesting mistakes in concerts along the way, but it's, you know, when you work with technology, it's just sort of, That's part of comes it. with the yep. game. Um, so, but since then I've actually been asked to perform other pieces that were written for cello and loop pedal. So, um, it's been, uh, you know, I'm very grateful to her for opening that door to me because now it's just another skill set that I have. Um, and the pedal is, I don't remember the exact model number actually. It's an old Boss like RC20 or something okay. like that where it's pretty much, it's very limited. Um, there's not a ton that you can do, you know, it's like stop record and like, you know, you can record many layers or like delete the last one. And that's pretty, at least with my knowledge of the pedal, that's, that's a lot of, that's basically it. Yeah. I know that they're super fancy now. And eventually if I continue to do it, I'll probably have to upgrade and, and learn something new. But for now it, it works. You know, it's an old, oldie but goodie. <laughs> right. If you had to look, like learn some new playing techniques to, to, uh, to get all these compositions expressed, yeah. Like what kind of, like chopping or? Yeah, well, the quartet also is super, um, has been super helpful for me learning new techniques. Um, I can fully admit that I am not um, a self-starter in some, in some respects. I'm really good at administratively starting things and starting projects and ideas. Um, but when it comes to musical techniques, I need to be, um, I need like, a sort of healing animal next to me, you know, I need like my little golden retriever with the vest on to be like, it's okay, I'm going to help you get this done. Um, so with the quartet, it's been interesting <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, when I started, I didn't play that much contemporary music at all. Um, and so that was one foray into a new world. And then um, a couple of the musicians in the ensemble 
were uh, really experienced in jazz performance, and so somehow improvisation in jazz started to sneak into our repertoire. And before I knew it, I was expected to walk a bass line um, and read charts, uh, and I hadn't studied any of this and gone to school for any of this, so I was really frightened for a long time. And I wasn't resistant to it, but just even going home and practicing it was scary because you know sometimes it's just hard to to bring yourself to learn something that you don't know how to how to do especially if others around you are very proficient um so along the way i've i've gained also other a lot of other skill sets in improvisation and a lot less scared of it now um and also learning chopping techniques and other sort of just raucous ways to hold down a string quartet as if we were a band um and you know with more traditional repertoire we're just reading on the page contemporary music there's a lot of um color and effects and things that go into the performance but oftentimes when we are sort of getting into our um just like all out rock out zone I have to beat the crap out of my cello, and I'm often using it as a percussive instrument and just doing all of these things that I never thought that I would be doing 10 years ago. And people always comment after concerts like, oh my god, your poor instrument! Like, yeah, hoping that it lasts the test of time. It used to be a tree. <laughs> yeah, totally. So strong. <laughs> so, and then, you know, with the solo project as well, you know, just... Um, more on an emotional level, on a, on a, a technique level as well, you know, um, with this experimenting with new ways to play the cello. But on an emotional level, I really need to empathize musically and embody these pieces. Um, so I can't really mess around with people's personal stories. So it's also challenged me to be very vulnerable on stage because it's not my story to tell, it's somebody else's story to tell. So I have to. Um, kind of get on there with a bleeding heart, which isn't always my style either. Um, so it's just been sort of like a technique and um, a technique explosion and also just an open heart <laughs> explosion, <laughs> open heart surgery, you know. Yeah. was just talking about some non-traditional techniques she's had to master in order to tackle some of the experimental music she and her quartet are playing. Here's a tune called An Impetuous Old Friend from Public Quartet's self-titled album. thought about 
like you're going to start composing some of your own stuff? Do you want to start telling some of your own stories musically with the cello? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because a long time, when I was working as a vet tech, what sort of inspired me actually to get back into music, well, well, not to get back into music, but to, um, to really put, you know, my full-time effort into it, um, was I took a chance on starting to write music for theater. Mm. I saw, this is when like Craigslist was still a thing, you know, to actually like possibly meet cool people or find work. Um, and so I saw on Craigslist in like 2008 or 2009, a posting by a theater company saying they're putting an all-female Romeo and Juliet together, the production of Romeo and Juliet, and they wanted a string instrumentalist, a violinist or a cellist to compose the music to the show. And so I wrote back to her, and we met, and we really hit it off, but I had never, ever, ever, ever written a note in my life. Um, and they wanted music that was relatively... sounded a little bit traditional or of, like, the, you know the Renaissance or something. So I could sort of pull a little bit from the sound world that I was already so used to playing in. Um, and I just was just sat down with my cello. I can picture it, you know, and just started to write stuff. And I wrote like little solo cello lines, um, on manuscript paper (laughs) and scored the whole show. And it was, you know, it was nothing, mind-boggling amazing about it but it was very effective and then I ended up doing Midsummer Night's Dream and I got into technology at that point so I was um I was uh recording backing tracks um in Logic and then using Max MSP to run live and run effects and like perform over the backing tracks and put effects in the cello live and then um I also did a bunch of layering cello effects for Macbeth and I ended up scoring a couple of um, promotional videos for the American, uh, or the is Breast Cancer Awareness Society, and then, or, oh my God, for Breast Cancer Awareness, it's the Pink Ribbon, mm-hmm. um, and uh, also for some promo videos for New York City Ballet. So it was a very interesting time, because I sort of, again, was that mentality of, I got myself into something, and then all of a sudden, I was like, wait, what did I just do? You know, um, so that was really fun, and there was a period of time where I was writing a lot of music. Um, and Have you got tape on all this? I do. Yes. <laughs> I do. Yeah, some, some of it is on my old hard drive, so I'll spend some time to, to dig some of it up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and again, it's like... I'm sure, and I, I didn't really keep it up because I just got busy and started doing other things. So if I had, it would be really cool to see where I, where I would have been now, you know. Because just the more you write, the better you get. For sure. It's like anything else. Yeah. Um, so that was a really fun period of my life. And it was actually, I mean, just to think about it, it was my own, it was the fact that I had found my own creative voice that inspired me to, to keep going. And I think that's just, like, the, a conversation about authenticity as artists. Like, what keeps us going? Um, and for some, some people, I think, in my field, it's the tradition of, of keeping, um, you know, classical music alive. And for me, that wasn't always, that wasn't my passion. Although I, I love all, all the music that I grew up on, of course, and still love to, to you know, perform um, music from the canon. But... Um, 
I just started to realize that, like, I had a voice, which was, and uh, I had a, a mission that I eventually found. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it was kind of interesting as somebody that always feels like I'm not a starter, I'm a follower. It actually turned out that I was a starter and I inspired myself, you know, to like, for all of us to sort of take the time to congratulate ourselves or to feel good about our accomplishments and to know that like we have a voice and we deserve to be on stage representing whoever it is we feel we authentically are. Yeah. So if you could go back now, knowing what you know now, and talk to yourself as a kid who's just getting started on the cello, what would you say to yourself? I think about this all the time. Yeah. You know, the hard ass in me and the sort of self-deprecating part of me immediately would go back and, of course, say, practice more, study more. You know? That's totally me. Yeah. Don't let all of the crap in your life get in your way, everything's going to work out, you're going to be fine. So just focus. That's the first thing that I probably would say. And then I would like take a step back with a little bit more compassion <laughs> and just be like, you know, um, to in just to encourage me to believe in myself and to, to try not to listen to what everybody else was telling me because I really think, like, you know, every year that passes, I just realize the more that comes out of people's mouths, my mouths, everybody's mouths, is like 90% coming from our own perspective and possibly only 10% actually actively listening and, like, communicating to another person from their perspective. It's so hard to step outside of ourselves and, like, take ourselves out of these kinds of situations but when you're young and people are just coming at you with all sorts of their own crap that you don't even recognize yet um i think i, I would have tried to to direct myself just to to keep believing in myself and and um to you know not let disappointment get drag me down too much so to basically ask the opposite question mm -hmm. Where, where do you see yourself being 15, 20 years from now? And, and imagining <laughs> a 55-year-old a you coming back and, and talking to 35-year-old you and saying... Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so funny. I, I think about that, too, and I don't have always as clear of an answer. Of course, it's difficult, you know. Yeah. So, first of all, um, I would probably still say all the th same things, you know, I'd probably be like, you, you could have practiced more in your thirties too. And don't listen to the crap that people are telling you, you know? So I think that we're always just going to tell ourselves the same thing, but, um, I probably would also say to trust my gut and, and, um, to realize that time moves very quickly and that I'm not I'm not responsible for other people's happiness in, in the way that um, it is okay I'm trying to figure out how I can actually say what I'm trying to say um, because I don't necessarily believe in, in the doctrine of my happiness first always self-care first self-care self-care um, I, I think that that is 
of course, really important because we are only the best that we can be if we are feeling our best. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's a fine line that I walk between feeling responsible for everybody's sorrow and also responsible for everybody's happiness. If I'm in a room where everybody is like in a negative space, I somehow am always trying to search how I can make it better or what I did. (laughs) Even if it's completely uh, preposterous that that would be the case, you know. So I think I would go back in time and just say to, to, yeah, to to trust my gut and to listen to what would make me um, happy and what the right decisions would be and to um, and to think about what would make me happy rather than what kinds of decisions I can make to not let somebody else down. Okay. Um, I think that's sort of where I'm trying to meander <laughs> to. Um, but for concrete future goals, I think I just want to keep going. I get antsy quickly. Um, I'm always trying to think of what the next project is or um how to you know keep up with the changing times and um how to reflect the times that we're living in um constantly and so 20 years from now it's going to be very different than it is today so hopefully i will still have my thumb on the pulse of society and um contributing in a helpful positive way Listen to a bit of Amanda playing a composition by Natalie Joachim called Damn When Yo. This is from Amanda's TED Talk earlier this year. I heard you say that your solo career kind of surprised you a little bit because that wasn't like 
a thing that was in your mind, up in the front of your mind, hey, I should do the solo thing. Mm-hmm. So what do you think you might, what, what sort of things are maybe out there on the horizon for you that you, you're going to look back and go, I don't really see that coming. Or, or maybe there's something sort of starting to form in your brain now that you go, man, I hope I get the courage to do this mm. thing. Interesting. Well, there, I think um, continuing to push myself in, in the solo project, I think I'm still kind of shocked by it. Um, so uh, maybe I still will be. <laughs> 10 or 20 years from now, um, I, I, I think that, um, I have larger dreams of starting an organization. And in fact, I, there is something sort of brewing with my solo project that, um, this is the Ford Music Project seed has been planted, but I think it's really going to grow into something, um, large and meaningful, um, and so I'm hoping that it will go in that direction and I'll turn back and just be like, holy crap, like I, I built um, an organization, you know, or I, um, I am traveling and, you know, spreading music in other parts of the world that I never thought that I would visit or, um, you know, get the opportunity to do more speaking engagements and... Um, you know, I, I uh, most recently signed on to with um, Manus to teach a course on women in music, and it's the first uh, course like that that's ever been offered. Um, music history in our conservatories is 99% white male dominated, and the 1% is sort of saved as a little, sort of a little section, maybe in, on one page, about um, composers of color or women, um, and let alone all of the great music that has been written and influenced by composers around the world. Um, so everything is sort of sectioned off as like music, classical music history, 17th, 18th, 19th century, and uh, it's really homogenous. Um, and then you can take a class on like ethnomusicology, which is totally separate, but um in my course, I was I challenged myself with trying to bring all of this together, um, and I brought discussions of race and uh, feminism, and um, history and world music, and uh, all into one, you know, crazy messy class. And uh, I had a lot of really deep, meaningful discussions with my students, and um, the atmosphere in the class was really warm and welcoming, and um, because it was really based in, you know, these, like, this pervasive history, um, that they felt comfortable to share their own stories, like, um, even just, you know, I had a mentor who made me feel very uncomfortable, or I was the only woman in this conducting class, and, you know, not, you know, or, like, and just felt like a minority, and so... Just whenever I'm in a position where I'm, I find myself with an audience that is learning something for the first time, I'm just very humbled and shocked. And it, it's, um, it's, it's, I struggle with that. 
because there's always that like nagging voice like, you don't know what you're talking about why does anybody want to listen to you there's so many people out there that are so much smarter um and the only way I can like shut that freaking voice up is like to tell myself that you know the way I approach things is is always from an emotional human um standpoint from the heart and that even if we're studying history it's not just facts and paper they're real people with real feelings let's try to go back and and recreate that feeling um and not just um you know i and and not just sort of just leave it in the past i think that the past always informs what we do so um we have to humanize it Mm -hmm. and uh so i think i will 10 to 20 years just circle back from this story, I will um, probably still continue to be shocked when I'm in positions like this, but just on a grander scale. Yeah. You know. On what level do you see technology and the changing technology play into this? I mean, we're seeing technology in the music business change at this just terrifying rate right yeah. now. And you know, by the time some of us have figured out how to get our songs on iTunes, iTunes is gone. Mm-hmm. And by the time you build this model, this business model that, hey, I'm going to sell, um, you know, my recorded music to make a living. Oh, yeah, nobody buys that anymore. Mm-hmm. So on, on what level, and, and there's not really, even in the classical world, which in many ways seeks to stay in the 16 and 1700s, you can't escape um, the advance of technology. So where do you see maybe some of that headed? Hmm. That is a really interesting question. Um Man, I think that, well, if we're talking about technology in terms of creating music, um, it's been a really interesting source of expression for some people. Um, I think there were some growing pains in terms of uh, just with where technology was at, trying to convey the emotional level that people were used to hearing in music performance. So, like, going back to the early days in the 1950s or, you know, when we had our first synthesizer, you know, these great machines that, um, or working with tape, um, I think that it was incredibly experimental and, but it, you know, it was really jarring for a lot of audience members. And I still see a lot of, um, music performance where it's really all technology based you know i just saw pamela z perform live in concert and the way she um worked with uh the technology that she set up i don't know what her setup is but i'm sure she's working something with max and she has some you know all these machines that she created with sensors where you know depending on physical body movements she can really manipulate the sound and I got her, like, as a person. And I could really feel the music and what she was creating. So I'm really excited to actually see how technology is going to reflect hu- human thought and human emotion when we always, we still, I think, tend to separate it. Um, and, like, we have the conversation with, like, robots. Like, at what point with AI are machines where will the separation between a human and machine be? And, you know, there are just tons of movies created about this. Mm -hmm. Um, So that would be really exciting. And I think that um, 
I always question, like, what is, if, you know, with technology, what does that mean for acoustic instruments? And where, you know, what does it, what does it mean for um, acoustic music? And um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know, like, it, is it going to be, is it not going to be a fight to keep, like, classical music around? Is it just going to be a fight to keep, perf- you know, performance, uh, acoustic performance in general funded? Um, and I think like it's also just regarding recording, it's kind of, it's crazy because, you know, CDs are a moot point now and CDs are mostly just something that you might need as a fancy business card to Mm -hmm. physically hand somebody. And, um, how are we going to get our music out there and how are we going to be paid for it? Which is really funny because like even though cds are dying we make the most money by selling physical cds i mean forget about itunes or spotify or you know anything like that it's it's the revenue is very small right so um i think that with recording that there something is going to break where musicians are really going to start revolting and there will be a way that we can have our music online digitally where we actually can go back to making profits like we did back when CD sales were, were really big. Um, and I think that it's happening on a small scale, but because we're all so desperate, desperate's the wrong word, um, we want to be seen and heard. And um, having your music on Spotify, for example, is a great way to do that because that's, you know, if some, they either go to your website or they go to Spotify or something like that. They're not going to download your CD most likely to get a glimpse of what you're like. So we put so much of ourselves out there for free because we live in such a, a visual society that people need to experience that before they can commit to even liking you or hiring you. Um, so I don't know. I would like, I would like that revolt to happen sometime soon. I don't know who's gonna <laughs> charge, you know, be in charge of that. You hear some pop stars that sort of like pull their music from certain new platforms, but um, it, we're just sort of in a time where it's like if we don't do that, then you're just not out there, and it becomes dangerous for your career. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then I don't know. I also don't play a lot of electronic instruments. I don't play like electric cello or anything like that. But I'm so grateful that like I have a DPA mic now, which is amazing. And I'm sure 10 years from now, it's gonna there's going to be so many advances in microphones that more and more we're going to be able to, re- through recording, to capture an actual like 3D sound of what your instrument really sounds like. Um, and it'll, it'll never be perfect, but um, I think my, uh, the violist in my quartet, Nick, was talking about this bioral experience or something like that where it's like it's like virtuality virtual reality but for sound mm. where it's like you actually can hear things as if it's like in three-dimensional or something so i think that's really kind of a crazy idea yeah anyway it's clear that i don't know about technology as much as i know about other things <laughs>
This is our last musical break of the day. This is Public Quartet's Surface Tension. I want to take just a minute to talk about our sponsor, Electric Violin Shop. If you want to amplify your string instrument or work with effects, electronics, loopers, or computers, you need to call EVS. No place in the world has the selection of instruments, effects, gear, or maybe even more importantly, expertise and experience. Violins, violas, and cellos are not guitars, but most of the gear we work with is designed for guitars. Some of it works well with bowed strings, some of it not so much. At EVS, we have years of experience working with this gear, and we chat with cutting-edge artists like Amanda and try to learn what they've figured out. Many times, advancements in music are made after long, painful, and expensive experimentation. Our relationships with the most cutting-edge artists allow us to learn the easy way what many of them have had to learn the hard way, and we can share that knowledge with you. Give us a call. You can find us online, electricviolinshop.com. technology and the way things so for a long time people got their music from the radio right mm -hmm. and there wasn't any picture associated with that so there were I mean you go back to the 50s there were a lot of times when nobody knew whether that artist was white or black mm -hmm. and that was a thing that mattered mm -hmm. at the time and then obviously for singers it's a little easier to tell if I've got a male or a female voice I'm listening to although that's not always easy um, but with instrumentalists, obviously, I can't tell if I'm listening to a, a woman drummer or, or a male drummer. But as things become more video driven, then we're, we're now seeing that, you know, how, how are a lot of people releasing their music on YouTube? Mm -hmm. I mean, how do people, people listen to a ton of their music on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, they said video killed the radio star, but it's, it's even getting further past that now that there's with social media and YouTube and all that, that there's not really any way to escape sort of letting people know I'm like a tall white guy with red hair. <laughs> and, and, and how does that change people's perception of music? Mm -hmm. and, and where do we see, like in a, maybe an increasingly polarized society, how, how does that affect how we express ourselves going forward? Interesting. Well, so now we, of course, you know, people are actually starting to finally gain interest in, in social justice on a much more widespread level. Um, back when there was just radio, um, there was also a lot of segregation and, a, and, and not a lot of opportunity for a female drummer, for example. So the assumption was 
that the drummer was male anyway. Um, and also there were certain boxes that artists were put in. So, you know, if you were listening to Motown, you probably would assume that those musicians were African-American. Or if you were listening to classical music, you would just picture four men on stage, or not, not just a string quartet, but if you were listening to classical music, you would picture back when there was just radio, tuxedos and primarily white men on stage. So I think that even though um, you couldn't see what was going on, there, um, there was a lot of oppression and it didn't matter because there was very limited, it was still very homogenous in terms of the music making and segregated. So I find what's interesting about people listening with their eyes now is that representation really matters. Um, and that's not to, not to say that uh, you have to force any sort of issue, um, but I do think it's important for people to actually see uh, you know, an all-African-American orchestra or um, you know, uh, a black artist that is performing or creating music that is quote unquote not in the sound world that they're supposed to be in, you know, like segregated or pushed off into hip hop or, you know, like, so I think that, um, we need to actually see artists that are creating music and participating in the sharing of culture. Um, because of course any human is capable of anything and should have access to any opportunity and be able to create any kind of music that they want to. Um, so for a younger generation that is coming up and will create the, you know, the, the future of music, they need to see, oh, so, you know, if I'm a young kid that's doesn't have access to music education because I'm in a neighborhood where it's, you know, forgotten mm -hmm. and nobody wants to fund me because they forgot about me and don't think that I have any hope for the future anyway. They need to see an organization like Sphinx, for example, that really supports musicians of color and um, can show them that they are capable of doing anything like that. Um, or they need to see, you know, um, a, a musician who is, you know, trans and creating music that is authentic to them. So I think that um, the visual aspect of everything is just helping society because you can't ignore it. I mean, you, you can. There are people that still do, of course. <laughs> but it's much, it's more and more difficult to ignore the fact that times are changing and um, opportunities are growing. And so I think it's, it's it's more important than than not. Um, so, yeah. But I think that's a really interesting question because people really do listen with their eyes now, not just on YouTube, but in the concert as well. You know, um, sometimes it can be just all about presentation and uh, not necessarily about the music. And other times it's just about the music and not about the presentation. So. Um, yeah, I think it was just, that's where we're headed. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, this is a fantastic chat. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for so coming much. by. I know you're on your way to a, to rehearsal now. Yeah. Um, but where can people find you and your music and, and the groups that you're playing with? Yeah, um, all the information of all the projects that I'm involved in 
are on my website, which is www.amandaguggen.com. And, you know, there's Twitter and Instagram and all of those things and Facebook. Awesome. Yeah. Well, go follow. Go follow, <laughs> buy, and support, and do all the things that you do to keep the music community rolling. Yeah. Thank you so much. You bet. <laughs>